The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. So that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. You know, good teaching uh, is a combination of both explanation and demonstration. You've probably figured that out in your own life. The things that you have really learned the most have come from people who are willing not only to tell you things or to impart information to you, they were willing to show you things. They formed a relationship with you and they demonstrated in their lives what they were trying to teach you. So if you want to know what it means to trust in Jesus and to follow Jesus, he has already told us consistently and constantly in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who will suffer, the one who will die, the one who will rise again. But here, in this passage, he not only tells us who he is, he shows us who he is. So let me read uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Follow along in your own Bible, or the words will be printed also uh, on your screen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this glimpse of your glory that by your grace you give us, you give to us in your word. We pray that as Peter and James and John saw that glory in person on that day, we would see it now by your goodness and your grace through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine, if you will, a run-of-the-mill Sunday morning, probably a run-of-the-mill Sunday morning before all of this uh, coronavirus stuff happened, so you got to kind of go back in time, but... You know, it's a run-of-the-mill Sunday morning. You wake up on that Sunday a little late, you know. As per usual, somebody in your family is unhappy about something. Maybe they don't want to eat the cereal that you got out for them. Maybe they don't want to wear the clothes that you prepared and ironed for them the night before. It could be anything, you know. But the whining and the arguing is really starting to get to you. It's really starting to annoy you when just at that moment, your wife looks at you and asks you, if you remembered to fix the broken doorknob to the hall bathroom. And instead of taking that as a normal question, you took that as an accusation against your manhood. 
And so you exploded in anger, as only a man can when his manly pride has been injured. Now you're in a fight with your wife. So you get everyone in the car. You're ten minutes late because of the arguing and the fighting. And you make your way to church. Nobody's feeling it. You're definitely not feeling it. You're rushing in. You're trying to get everybody settled. Your heart rate and your blood pressure are pumping You consider just turning around, grabbing everybody, throwing them back in the car and driving home, but you don't. You finally get settled into a seat, and then this happens. The floor beneath your feet begins to shake. The walls of this room that we're in right now, they begin to shake. You hear an earth-shattering noise above you, and you look up to see the roof of this sanctuary lifted off of its moorings and tossed aside like it was nothing. And while you're looking up, you're blinded by the brightest and most intense light that you have ever seen. So you cover your eyes, squinting, so as not to go completely and fully blind. And then you see him, the risen and glorified Jesus, descending from the clouds into the midst of this very room. His face shines like the sun. His clothing radiates bright, white, hot light. The angels and the archangels, the cherubim and the seraphim surround him and they are all singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And when the resurrected and glorified Jesus settles into this room, filling every square millimeter with the power and the radiance of his full glory, then you hear a booming voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the glorified Jesus in the midst of this room speaks and says, follow me. And the next thing you know, He ascends back into heaven. The cherubim and the seraphim and the angels and the archangels all follow him. The light is sucked out of the room. The roof is picked up off of our field. It is placed back onto its moorings and everything is silent again. Now let me ask you a question. If that happened, if that actually happened, would it be possible that your life could ever be the same? Would you just go back to business as usual in your life? Well, this did happen. It happened to Peter and James and John in the passage that is before us. And if the Bible is to believe, it it happens every single time that followers of Jesus are worshiping him together, whether in person or in the Spirit. Our worship is not as dramatic as this scene in Mark 9, but it's no less real than that. And it teaches us something. It teaches us this. Any true encounter with Jesus results in worship. Any true encounter with Jesus results in worship. The problem is that when we do not see Jesus for who he really is, we end up creating a Jesus who is in our own image, and we end up worshiping that Jesus, a false Jesus, which the Bible calls idolatry. But if our eyes are open, 
And we see and embrace Jesus for who he claims to be. And we follow him along the paths that he leads us. Well, that changes absolutely everything. In particular, it changes us from worshiping ourselves or worshiping something else or someone else to worshiping our glorious Savior. Any true encounter with Jesus results in worship. Now, worship is simply a word that means giving ultimate worth to someone or something. That's what worship is, giving ultimate worth to someone or something. And I'm not only restricting the word worship to what we do on Sunday mornings or what we're doing right now on this Sunday morning at 1030, you know, scattered all over the city and all over the country. I'm using worship to talk about submitting ourselves to Jesus, submitting your life to Jesus day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. It's what the 16th century reformers called living your life quorum Deo, living your entire life before the face of God. All of our lives are acts of worship if we embrace Jesus. Why? Two reasons that I want to talk about from this passage. First, because Jesus is the glory of God. Second, because Jesus is the mediator between God and human beings. So first, all of life is characterized by worship because Jesus is the glory of God. It's a big question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Just a man? Maybe not just a man, but maybe a, a good man, maybe not just a good man, but a strong moral teacher, maybe a martyr for a cause. Who is Jesus? It's a critical, critical question. Because if you answer it in any other way than that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, you ultimately have nothing to lose by ignoring him. If he's just a martyr, you don't have to pay attention to him. If he's just a good moral teacher, you don't have to follow his moral teaching. But if he really is God himself in the flesh, you have everything to lose also by ignoring him. And you have everything to gain by embracing him. So what do we see in this text before us? Well, verse 9 begins with a time stamp, a very particular and specific time stamp. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, and they were kind of like the inner circle of disciples, the three disciples that Jesus was the closest to. So Mark tells us, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves. Now, it is very unusual in the Gospel of Mark for Mark to be this specific about time. Sometimes he says, after this or after that, uh, or after these things, or something that is a little bit more generic. But after six days, it's very specific. He really, really wants to tie this passage and to tie this narrative to the passage and the narrative that came before it. So Mark is reminding us of something. He's saying this. This event in the life of Jesus and these three disciples took place after, six days after, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. 
It took place six days after Jesus' teaching regarding his suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. It took place six days after Peter's rebuke of Jesus for the very suggestion or hint that the Messiah might die. It took place six days after Jesus' rebuke of Peter and then calling him Satan for trying to stand in the way of his mission of going to Jerusalem and to the cross. It took place six days after Jesus' teaching on the sacrificial nature of true discipleship. That to follow Jesus is to take up your cross, to be prepared to die under your own desires, and to live your life in joyful obedience to Jesus. So you see, Jesus just told the disciples a lot of things, right? He told them a lot of things. Now what's he going to do? He's going to show them. And by virtue of him showing them and them writing, and Mark writing this down, he's going to show us. The unspecified high mountain, which a lot of commentators believe is Mount Hermon because it's proximity to Caesarea Philippi where a lot of this took place evokes images or should evoke images in our minds from Exodus 24, Exodus 33, and Exodus 34. When Moses went up on a high mountain into the presence of the Lord and the Lord descended upon him as a cloud. Now we're going to see in just a second that there are similarities between these events but there are very important differences as well. And on this mountain, Mark writes with characteristic simplicity and brevity, Jesus was transfigured before them. The Greek word that Mark uses here is the word metamorphone. And you can hear the English word metamorphosis in it. It's a very rare word in the New Testament. It's not used a lot. But every time it is used, it means a radical change. Not just a slight change. Not just a deviation. A radical change. But what kind of change? Did Jesus in his transfiguration change his nature? Did he for the very briefest of times in that event become God? When before that he was just a man? No, that's not what happened. Jesus was and is God. His nature did not change at his transfiguration. Rather, his full nature was revealed. We talked a few Sundays ago from Philippians chapter 2 about how Jesus emptied himself of some of the manifestations of his deity, not of his deity, but some of the manifestations of his deity at his incarnation. And here, on the mountain of transfiguration, for the briefest of time, Jesus put all of that back on. He took it back up to display the radiance of his full glory. Glory so bright that Peter, James, and John had to shield themselves from it. And they trembled in his presence with fear. Now let's go back to Exodus chapter 34. When God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, the Bible tells us that when he came down off of the mountain, the people of Israel could not look at his face. Why? Because it shone with the brightness like the sun. But here's the difference. Moses' face was shining because he had been in the awesome presence of God and he was reflecting the glory of God to the people of Israel. Moses' face was like a bright harvest moon that was reflecting the light of the sun. 
Moses' face was not the sun, it was the moon. It was reflecting the glory of God. Moses was not the source of that light. He reflected that light. But here's the difference, and this is important. Jesus, at his transfiguration, produced and radiated glory. He does not reflect glory. Jesus is glory, the very glory of God himself. Moses' face was bright as a reflection. Jesus' face was bright as a manifestation. When you look at the face of Jesus with his full glory on display, you are looking at the very face of God. And it is awesome. It is a wonder to behold. Is that how you see and understand Jesus this morning? Or maybe, maybe Jesus has gotten just a little bit too familiar to me, to you. Maybe just a little bit too comfortable. Maybe you need to see him uh, put that radiance back on and, and, and see him in his full, absolute, white, hot glory. Because our propensity as human beings is to get very familiar with him. It's one of the reasons why this time, even if you're sitting on your sofa right now, uh, worshiping with us, apart from us, this time is very important. Because when we are by ourselves out in the world, what the world believes about Jesus tends to rub off on us. It's only natural. It's going to happen. And it begins to weaken in our estimation. We weaken in our passion for our lives of worship, living our lives before the face of God. We worship together as a community to be shown, even in this format, His glory. Because He promises to be with us when we're together in the Spirit. For a few summers, uh, when he was in middle school, I would travel with my youngest son, Andrew, to a lacrosse tournament in Denver in June. We would go to these fields that were just to the west of the airport. And if you've ever been to Denver and you've ever flown into the Denver airport and then wanted to go into the mountains or wanted to go to downtown, you're driving from the east to the west. And what you see when you get on the highway starting to go west in to, towards downtown Denver are the rocky mountains that just kind of rise up right before you. And they look like just this sh solid sheet of mountains, you know, right before you. They look high. They look impressive, but they also look, from that vantage point, two-dimensional, don't they? They look high and they look long, but they don't look deep. They don't look deep. In fact, I once read a biography about Lewis and Clark, and they actually thought when they saw the Rocky Mountains from a distance that if they could just get over that one pass that they saw, they'd actually drop down into the Pacific Ocean they recognized very quickly that that was not going to happen. Because it is only once you get inside the mountain range that you realize how far these mountains go, how far the west to the west that they go, how deep that they are, how awe-inspiring these mountains are. You actually understand that when you're on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, you don't even see the highest peaks. You have to get in there to see the highest peaks peaks to truly experience the majestic awe of the Rocky Mountains you have to go into them you have to be in them and in the same way if you remain distant from Christ if you keep him at an arm's length 
from you. You will not see or experience his full, transformative, life-changing glory. It's very tempting for us because as Joe Deegan reminded us a few weeks ago in a song that he wrote that was inspired by the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Jesus isn't safe. And so to go into him or to let him go into you either way means that you're not going to be left alone. He won't leave you alone. He won't simply confirm your carefully cultivated views of the world. He won't do that. He'll challenge you. He'll refine you. He'll sharpen you. He'll shape you. He'll mold you. And sometimes that is painful. But he'll do it for your good and for his glory. I'll tell you that something that I think is going to be a great temptation for the church, this church and a lot of other churches during this season, um, or potentially multiple seasons. I mean, who knows how long that this is going to last. Where our life of worship looks and feels different due to COVID-19. Our live stream is very important because it's important sometimes for us not to gather together for a variety of reasons. It's real and true and it's a life-giving way to worship. But I know my own heart. And so one of the things that I'm curious about as your pastor is what's going to happen to the rhythm of our life of worship during this season? Not only at Christ the King, I think this is true for a lot of other churches. Because not coming together, being able to come together, or coming together over time could move from a necessity to a convenience to complete absence. It could happen that not gathering, not being a part of worship, which is at times like now a necessity, that could transition at some time to a convenience, which could transition at some time to say, you know what? My life is not all that much different without all these other people kind of bumping into it and shaping me and, and forming me and helping me. I don't really think I need this that much. And we're left with nothing then to orient us back to the fact that God is God and we are not God. That's one of my fears for the church over time, the church in America over time. And so my words imploring you are these. My words of admonition are these. Don't drift away from worship during this time. However it is that you are able to be a part of it. However you're able to be a part of it. Don't drift away from it during this time. Worship is vital. Whether we're in person or whether you're participating via live stream, the ethos and the rhythms of our culture are going to do everything possible to try to convince you that this is not important for you. But if Jesus is the very glory of God himself, the ethos and the rhythms of our culture are not only wrong, but they are deadly dangerous for our hearts, and for our lives. Jesus is the glory of God. But that presents us a massive problem, if you stop to think about it for a second, doesn't it? And that's a problem that this passage also deals with. You see, Jesus is not only the glory of God, he's also the only mediator between God and humanity. Do you know what the most surprising thing about this, uh, this transfiguration of Jesus is? 
the most surprising thing about this whole story. It's not that Jesus revealed his true glory. That glory rightfully belongs to him. Nothing too surprising about that. It's not even that Elijah and Moses showed up to talk to Jesus. If you have room in your head and your heart for uh, presuppositions that the supernatural is possible, there's nothing at all weird about this in the way that the Bible views the world. Actually, the most surprising part of this story is this. Peter, James, and John did not die. That's the strangest part of this whole story. They stayed alive. In Exodus chapter 33, God told Moses that he could not see his face, that God would hide him in the cleft of a rock. He would pass by him. He would open Moses' eyes. He would remove his hand from his eyes. Moses could see his back, but not his face. Why? Because God said, no one may see my face and live. But Peter, James, and John looked into the glorified face of Jesus and lived. How, what, what, what is up with that? Well, the grace of God is what's up with that. The grace of God embodied in Jesus, the mediator between God and humanity, and the beauty of it can't possibly be overstated. The first way that we see Jesus here in this passage as our mediator is that he bridges the gap between you and God. There is a gap of relationship that exists between you and God. It is caused by our sin. And it's not incidental then to what is happening in this passage that Moses and Elijah show up to have a conversation with Jesus. Nobody really knows what the content of this conversation was. Nobody really knows why it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe Moses was there representing the law. Maybe Elijah was there as the representative of the prophets. But whatever it was, there are two central figures uh, in what we call now the Old Testament. These are two central figures in a manner of God interacting with his people that was incomplete. So you see, the law of God constantly points us to our need for grace. It's not The law of God is not a manageable burden. You can't keep it. The prophets were constantly and consistently reminding the people simply to come back to him, to come back and repent, and he would be gracious. And underlying all of this in the Old Testament was a sacrificial system of worship, repeated and continual sacrifices for sin that had temporary efficacy on behalf of the people. But then God the Father speaks from this cloud on this mountain in the hearing of Peter, James, and John and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Now these words could be understand, uh, understood generally, like listen to Him and everything that He says. That's good because He's Jesus. That's the Word of God Himself. But I think it's more specific particularly as Peter would have understood the words from that cloud. Listen to him and what? Well, what came just before this passage? Jesus predicting his death on the cross, his sacrificial death. Listen to him. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after they kill him, he will rise. Listen to him. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the only means of your salvation. That's it. 
Listen to him. Don't make Jesus into something that he is not. Because what he is is crucial and vital. Listen to him. And finally, Jesus is the great mediator because he walks with us. Peter does it again. Peter, my favorite character uh, in all of the Gospels. Again, he's the first person to speak. And this time he stammers out something because as Mark tells us, he and James and John were all terrified. And he says, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, Jesus. One for Elijah and one for Moses. Now, this is not as random as it seems. The word Peter uses for tents here is the word in Greek that the Old Testament translates as tabernacle. The tabernacle was the movable place of worship for the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was housed in the tabernacle. The, The altar of sacrifice was in the tabernacle. The glory of God settled upon the tabernacle in the days of Moses. And Moses would go to the door and God would confer with him and meet with him. In his fear, to his credit, Peter remembers his Bible. The glory of God needs a place to dwell. It doesn't just kind of, it needs a a home. Or maybe he was thinking the glory of God needs a place to be contained so we're not destroyed by it. But after he said this, after he offered a home for the glory of God, and after God the Father spoke from the cloud, the cloud lifted, Moses and Elijah departed, and only Jesus remained. What's that about? Well, this is what it's about. They didn't need to build a tabernacle. They didn't need a place to house the glory of God. The tabernacle was standing there right in front of them. Jesus himself, as John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, or literally tabernacled, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Moses could never bridge the gap that existed between God and his people. Elijah could never bridge the gap between God and his people, that gap that is caused by our sin and rebellion. Only Jesus can bridge the gap of sin between you and God and me and God. And this is exactly where I want to end this morning. Jesus, the only mediator between God and you, the perfect, spotless sacrifice, also walks with you. He walks with you in these days where you really can't plan your life more in a week in advance. He walks with you in that. He walks with you when your vocational life feels so unsteady and so uncertain. He walks with you as cases of COVID-19 rise and our world looks like it's coming apart and our culture looks like it's just splitting apart at the seams. Jesus, who is the glory of God walks with you. Worship him alone. Let's pray. Jesus, God made flesh. How gracious is it that you walk with us? Who can believe it? Who can understand it? 
Who can behold it? And who can experience it and not be completely and utterly transformed by it? Forgive us for that. Forgive us for going our own way. Forgiving us, forgive us for getting your, your glory and your power, your transformative power. And walk with us and help us to live every week, every day, every hour, every moment in your presence, the presence of worship. Amen.